Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple data points, use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So this week we have one data point, and it's 18,000. That is the number of members of the United Auto Workers Union that are currently on strike in the United States. Nearly two weeks into the strike for members of the United Auto Workers Union, and there's no sign of a tentative agreement between the UAW and any of the Detroit United Auto Workers Workers Union is threatening to expand its strike if no progress is made in negotiations this week. Workers at Arlington's GM plant have been rallying in support of strike. This strike was triggered by the expiration of the four-year contracts that the UAW had previously signed with Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis, which is the parent company of Chrysler and Jeep. Of course, this also comes against the background of inflation and years of relative austerity in the auto industry. The union now has a range of demands, including a 46% pay increase and a four-day work week with overtime pay beyond 32 hours. In any case, the 18,000 strikers are just a fraction of the 150,000 members of the union, but union leaders are already threatening to expand the strike to ever more factories across the United States, and it's already the biggest labor action in in the auto industry in years. The best evidence for that might be the way it's entered national politics, with President Joe Biden taking the unprecedented step of actually appearing on the picket lines, while Donald Trump spoke to a separate group of non-union auto workers this past week. We thought we'd take a step back, though, from the day-to-day fray, as we usually do, to place some of this labor action in broader context, including the context of the U.S. economy, but also the auto industry in general. So, Adam, everyone talks about the return of manufacturing to the U.S. economy. That's become a kind of political cliche all its own, the need to bring manufacturing back. But there does actually seem to be something genuinely distinct about the significance of the auto industry to the national economy or a national economy in general, maybe. You know, I I recall how auto workers were deemed essential during the pandemic, for example. So, you know, that's one marker of their significance. So do some kinds of manufacturing ultimately matter more than others? And what kind of metrics would we use in measuring that kind of thing in the first place? I think it's hard to deny. And in a sense, it's kind of a sign of the times that this question is posing at all with regard to the American auto industry, because for so long, I mean, it's an overused cliche, but it really was iconic. I mean, it stood for America's industrial preeminence in the world. The American system of manufacture, the mass manufacturing system of interchangeable parts, goes back to the 19th century with gun making and then things like sewing machines. But it's really the dawn of the 20th century and the advent of Detroit as we know it today. I mean, by, with symbolized by the Model T Ford, which was introduced in 1908, that 
that defines America's emergence as the preeminent economic power in the 20th century more than anything else. I mean, Wall Street's dollars may in fact be more consequential in the 20th century for much of the time, but you know, not for nothing. An entire epoch of industrialism is is labelled Fordism by European observers um, because it's so impressive. And what's so impressive about it is that very complicated machines and cars really are in the early 20th century, by far and away the most complicated machine that people encounter in their daily lives are being mass manufactured on the scale of millions and millions and then tens of millions a year. And then on 1st of January, 1914, Henry Ford introduces the famous $5 for an eight-hour day on his crushingly demanding um, production lines, this offer, which for the first time holds out the promise that industrial workers might actually at some point be able to afford the sophisticated products that they're actually making themselves. And, and that, that model of hugely efficient mass production of sophisticated machinery generating earnings that placed workers in a position to actually consume them is, for many observers, seen as really the driver of a new era of economic growth, and it is emphatically American. And when we say emphatically, by the aftermath of World War II, even if we discount the 46, 47 years when the rest of the world was in ruins, in 1950, three quarters of all cars produced in the world were produced in the United States by the big three. Three quarters of all the cars produced in the world. So at that point, America's dominance, you know, if you, behind the Marshall Plan, in other words, essentially sits the car industry. And it's not for nothing that senior executives of the car industry are key figures in American politics, like Robert McNamara, right? The, the car industry is what tech is today to the American economy. It's the central symbolic, whatever its quantitative significance, and it was huge. It was the um, the driver, if you think about the mass production of weapons in, in World War II, not so much in World War I when the Americans are learning from the Europeans, but in World War II, Again, Detroit and Ford is at the center of that story. In fact, it took a lot of technical expertise the car makers didn't have. But in symbolic terms, that is the image. And the Biden administration has, has almost in a reflex kind of recurred to that image of the arsenal of democracy and the green energy transition in confrontation with China. And that makes, again, the car makers and the EV sector into kind of this symbolic center of this new era of industrialism. In, in practice, American employment in the industry peaked at 1.1 million. And there's this study that the car industry itself did that circulated abundantly in the period of crisis from 2008 onwards, where they claim that something like 10% of all jobs in America depend on those 1.1 million employed in car making. That's a huge exaggeration because basically what they've said is the steel industry wouldn't exist without us. You know, the, the synthetic rubber industry wouldn't exist without us. They've added up, maximized. But it's a huge employer by any standards. The difference is that whereas once upon a time, out of that 1.1 million or so, because roughly speaking, employment in the sector has been relatively steady since the 1980s. But what's happened is the balance has shifted. So whereas in the early 80s, the overwhelming majority were employed by the big three, by Ford, GM and Chrysler in its various incarnations. In the current period, um, the, the American big three, the, the American auto industry, they only employ one, 146,000. So those are the workers that are in the front line of this strike right now. The vast majority of workers in the American so-called auto industry don't work in Detroit-based, Detroit-centered big three plants. Right? They work in the huge mass of foreign producers that operate in the United States, Japanese, European, South Korean. So this is the, the end of an arc of really world-defining national preeminence. This is the sector, you know, along with the atomic bomb, you could say, this is the sector which defines America's power in the 20th century, but also 
it's the most dramatic symbol of America's in relative industrial decline, or you could simply say the reallocation of resources within the US economy towards other sectors, services on the one done and high tech and the other with, of course, huge revenue flows also circulating through the financial system. So that's, I think, why for everyone in American politics, it has a kind of, you could say it's an atavistic attraction, but you can also see why it has this attraction. And it continues to be a very big employer of people and a great generator of value, but no longer in the configuration that was so defining of the early 20th century and the decline of the city of Detroit with its ultimate bankruptcy and the social disaster, the you know, demolition of large parts of the city is, is emblematic of that complex trajectory. Got it. Okay. Yeah. There, it sounds like there's a fair bit of sentimentalism there in thinking about the significance of auto manufacturing. But I mean, like just to take a, a look at the union involved here, you know, how, I'm curious how the UAW compares to auto manufacturing unions in other countries. You know, this strike is obviously the, the product of some kind of adversarial relationship between workers and management in the U.S. labor union system. But sometimes other examples of labor unions are cited, uh, specifically Germany's labor union model. Yeah, is there really a, a stark difference between the U.S. labor system and, and, the, and the German one, say, or is that exaggerated? It's such a su interesting question, and I started digging into this. It was a little frustrating, because on the one hand, the auto industry historically was the sector in which comparative studies of labor were carried out because it was the sector that was most commonly present most the most the advanced industrial sector where you had mass manufacturing facilities in countries as far flung as united states europe canada mexico south africa brazil all of europe in each individual country and you could do the soviet union ultimately also of course in east asia and then in china and so for students of comparative you know, labor studies and labor militancy studies this was as it were the the kind of your, your lab if you like for the real the real world lab there's also, however, been a noted decline in those kind of studies. So, you know, looking online in the usual places for doing research for this program, like since the early 2000s, it, there really hasn't been much comparative study. So, I'm kind of piecing this together. And, and I think the easiest way to approach it is in historical terms, actually. Because if you think about the story we, I was just telling about the utter preeminence of the American auto industry through to the middle of the 20th century, with 75 to 80% of all cars in the world being produced in the US, this creates this incredible theater, if you like, of class struggle in Detroit. So between the famous sit-down strike, which started in December 36 and ran through to February 37, through to the Treaty of Detroit in 1950, the battles between the UAW and the various other branches of the American labor movement and the big three auto plants are literally decisive for describing how the balance of class forces and class relations stands in the United States. This defines the American social model. That, that is another reason, I think, why auto workers and the auto industry and the big three are so pivotal to American debates about socioeconomic policy, because the decision essentially by the trade unions to agree with the employers on a corporate model of both pensions and, and healthcare is decisive in shaping the difference between the United States and the rest of the world in terms of social democratic welfare models and so on. Of course, this is a choice. This isn't what their free choice. This was a, the, you know, the best they could get in a situation in which Truman's efforts to pass a much more comprehensive post-New Deal, second New Deal welfare state had collapsed. So this is how it is really, you can tell the entire history of class relations in the most powerful and important capitalist economy in the world through the auto sector in Detroit in this period. 
after 50, really, the growth, the entire growth of the global auto industry in terms of the quantity of production takes place outside the United States. It's really dramatic. Of course, in large part, including those American companies. And so in Britain, in Italy, in Spain, in France, in Germany, you have both local producers, the VWs, the Fiat's, the, you know, the British Leylands of this world, doing American style mass manufacture of cars, but also GM, Ford and Chrysler. The militancy is more in Europe in that period, in the notably in the 60s and 70s. America's unions then break out into a more militant campaign. They literally call one of their strike waves the Apache campaign of resistance, if you like, against the big auto worker, auto uh, firms which are trying to move labor in the United States to the non-union South. They win considerable concessions in this respect. The big three agree to extend Detroit-based labor contracts to the rest of the US, but then the tables are really dramatically turned on them in the 1980s uh, by the crushing advance of um, the Republican-driven um, right-to-work state model where you have essentially a whole series of state-level legislation which makes it very difficult to achieve collective bargaining. And, and from that period onwards, really, the UAW is on the back foot fighting a series of defensive campaigns which then culminate really in the the concessions that had to be made in 2008-9 to keep GM in particular on the road, right? Because it was in the point of bankruptcy. Chrysler had been in, in and out of bankruptcy repeatedly since the 1980s. In Europe, the story, notably in Germany, the story is sort of asynchronous, but ends up really in the same place. German trade unions and left activists have appropriated quite actively the, if you like, the weapons of the weak from the American side. And, and that's become the model for a resurgence of IG Metall in, in the 2010s is, is actually an appropriation of the kind of strategies of defensive organizing that the Americans have employed. So there's some very interesting back and forth there. In general, you'd have to say that they're all on the defensive. Got it. Okay. Yeah, it does seem like they're in a position as weakness. But yeah, to shift to the politics of this, you know, as I mentioned, there's been a lot of commentary about how unusual and unprecedented it was for Joe Biden to get involved in this labor dispute, or at least to do so specifically on the side of labor, uh, with him appearing on on the picket lines this past week. I'm curious whether this marks the United States out as an outlier in terms of political tra tradition. I mean, uh, whether this is a sign that the United States simply has no specific social democratic tradition that this is so unprecedented for a president to get involved in this way? Or, yeah, is this kind of consistent with uh, politics elsewhere in the world? I think it's remarkable because it is the first time in American history, apparently labor historians you know, emphasize this, that this is the first time a sitting president has, has been on a picket line like this. And it does strike me as re remarkable because even in countries with social democratic systems. So politics where one of the two governing parties grows out of the organized labor movement. The norm is for social democrats to then find themselves in the awkward position of having to endorse a notion of kind of parity, right, between different social partners. So as to maintain this overarching and crucial legitimating fiction that they represent everyone. So a social democratic chancellor in Germany or a labor prime minister in Britain will, of course, have close connections to the labor movement. But when acting as chancellor or prime minister, the position of the government is generally that of a neutral, open-minded mediator. Now, of course, the fact that they will confer on trade unions the power 
to, as it were, demand representation at that level and go to Downing Street is itself a historical break. And it marks, as it were, if you like, a shift in the balance. But the the notion of, of government involves being a third party and not being on the side of the particular, of the one of the two parties. And so it's multiple levels really quite dizzying that a sitting president should choose. And I'm not saying this as like conservative outrage. Oh my God, I can't believe what he's done. It's more, you know, what stage of America's ongoing, shall we say, to put as neutrally as possible constitutional development are we in, in which this, and then the alternative is, of course, that Trump's meeting with another group of workers who are, as you said, non-union organized. So, you know, in the ongoing politicization of every single institution of the American Republic, the military, the law, the the electoral process itself, ESG criteria in Texas, it now seems like this too is being sucked into the full-on partisan whirlwind. And someone around Biden said, yeah, let's go for it. Like, this is the thing to do. This is interesting. Yeah. I, I'd never thought of this as particularly potentially troubling, but you're right. I mean, in the sense that structurally a government shouldn't or couldn't be in favor of disorder, right? I mean, that's sort of like, it's sort of structurally almost impossible for a government to be in favor of disorder, but but a strike is almost inherently a kind of a disordered process in a way. I mean, it's a sign of failure of some of some other kind of procedure, right? I think what we're seeing in this moment is a decision by the Biden team to say, yeah, this is political. Biden went onto that picket line. And remember what he said. He says, this is about the American middle class and their contribution to making the United States. So he has simply said that in this struggle, America, the true heart of America is at stake. I mean, how employers are supposed to view this, if that's the position he's taking, is really quite extraordinary. I mean, he's basically saying, I find the conditions in America so disordered right now that I must use the full weight and authority of the White House to back. I think he's there as president and not just as a Democratic politician. He said he was burbling on about how he's never done this as a president. So he's there as a president. And he's saying the full weight of the White House needs to be thrown behind these people, this, these hundreds of these tens of thousands of people who've decided to make this strike theirs. And we stand with you as representatives of the nothing less than the middle class, the middle of American society against this particular group of employers who are mistreating you. It's really, I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, the American left must just be kind of Dizzy. Yeah, it's you're making difficult. Joe Biden yeah. sound like a socialist anarchist here. Uh, but uh, no, no, but certainly an extra part. I mean, as somebody who's employing um, the institutional power of the state in a way that is mm -hmm. very, really quite remarkable. I, I just wonder how far it's actually felt worked through as a project and whether they really gamed this out or whether in the end it was all about just burnishing his you know, man of the people, labor union credentials. To me, it's almost a more impressive if it's not thought out. I mean, you know, because it's uh, it's almost, as you said, an expression of some broader breakdown. But um... I mean, it's clearly expressive of a broader breakdown. I think the question is whether or not on the Biden side, it is a deeply thought through strategy or it's actually some ghastly exercise in image management gone completely, you know, just, just kind of unfettered image management strategy. And you could say that was another symptom of breakdown, if that's the case. If the people in the White House considered this basically as a matter of his relative positioning for the campaign next year, 
then then again you have to say like from a german point of view it's unfathomable this is like a major shift in the constitutional structure and if that were to be driven by simply an image burnishing or maybe the tactical choice that because trump can't run against organized labor they can't really lose because he's going to be the candidate and so a genuinely pro business employer oriented republican really doesn't have a chance in the polling but we know perfectly well what will sit behind the Republicans and which way, presumably, business interests will now tend to drift. We'll stop here to take a quick break, but we will be back to continue talking about the auto strike and the automobile manufacturing sector. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. 
head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Now to shift into more specifics about the auto sector and its current state. I mean, obviously, we're generally in the midst of a transition to electric cars. That's obviously the buzzword or, you know, that's the trend these days, in part because of public subsidies that have passed in the United States. And I'm curious whether this transition to electric cars is itself bad for labor. Are factories moving to non-union states in the United States? And is that then by design, in fact, of, of these public subsidies? Yeah, I mean, I think there are there are three threats here for labor. Um, the first is in the actual design of the vehicles themselves, like electrical vehicles don't have in you know these lovely internal combustion engines that I grew up idolizing or the transmissions that go with them even more importantly in terms of employment and um so VW and Ford both estimate that they need about 30% less labor to make the drivetrain for an EV so that's that's one concern the second concern for labor is that the investment costs of actually building these plants put huge financial pressure on the firms who have been making huge profits recently, but nevertheless have this large, so the the big three, I think, in the US have committed about 100 billion in investment. And they will use that as an argument for saying, we can't pay you wages now, but there'll be good jobs later. So that's a, that's a threat. And the third is absolutely that the geography of labor is part of, it's part of an ongoing rearrangement of the geography of car production everywhere in the world, but notably in the US. And so the so-called battery belt is Kentucky, Tennessee, which are right to work, um, anti-labor states in the US. And so this is a huge challenge. I'm curious whether it might be too late anyway for the U.S. auto industry when it comes to electric cars. The data shows that China has gained a huge market share in the electric car segment. So can the U.S. auto industry even catch up to China at this point? Yeah. So again, we, as we use this phrase, U.S. auto industry, we have to keep checking ourselves. Like The majority of cars made in the United States right now are not made by Ford, GM, and Chrysler, right? So the US auto industry is a large sector with lots of participants. And will America need cars? And will most of those cars be made in the US? Yes, they will. Um, will they be made by Ford, GM, and and Chrysler is a very different question. And and Ford doesn't really make cars anymore, right? Within the US, all it makes is trucks because they reckon that's they make Ford F-150 and all its different variants because that's where all the money is. Uh, Chrysler is an offshoot of Fiat, owned by the Agnelli family through its its holding company, and is a bit player really in this scene. And GM is really the only one which is a fully featured Toyota VW equivalent kind of car maker, and they are really on the back foot. Um, but that's not that's not just their problem. That's true of VW as well, um, because Tesla and the Chinese have stolen such a huge advance on on them. The dominance all the way up and down the supply chain with charging infrastructure at one end and battery production at the other is so dramatic that they are all struggling for survival. So finally, I guess I wanted to ask about the future of the U.S. car manufacturers. If they don't manage this successful shift to electric cars, and, and you know we've we've talked about oil producers, oil producing countries, in the context of this shift to renewable energy around the world, and you know we've talked about how there will still be oil producers. The you know probably the the, the surviving ones will be the low cost oil producers in the Persian Gulf, and and they'll continue on pumping out oil, et cetera. And I'm curious whether there's something 
something similar possible to envision for U.S. car manufacturers? Might they sort of be the remaining manufacturer of, you know, big gas guzzling SUVs and trucks? Might that be the kind of global niche that they end up dominating? Is that a possible future that we can envision? Yeah, these kind of rearguard fossil fuel scenarios, I think, are, we do need to take them very seriously because, you know, if we're going to get to net zero, that we kind of mean what we say, we have to we have to somehow stamp all of that out. And that is really, you know, when you, you even talk about it like that, you can see what the problems are. I mean, in America right now, America led the adoption of hybrids with the Prius in the 2000s. I will never forget the impression of suddenly being in this country with all of these weird electric cars going around in the early 2000s. And what America symbolizes a kind of polarized culture of motor vehicles, right? So on the one hand, you have very rapid adoption by the liberal democratic voting urban classes of, of hybrids and electric. And on the other hand, you have this recalcitrant, very heavy, heavy engined, very massive vehicles. The size of American cars by itself is an obstacle to a green energy transition. They're so gigantic and it's an arms race, right? Because the last thing you want to be is on the interstate in a small car with everyone driving around in two ton, three ton, you know, megaloths. And it's hugely polarized. If you look at the data for car purchases in the US, it's Republican v. Democrat, like so much else in this country with truck ownership very heavily concentrated amongst Republicans and hybrid EV alternative drivetrain vehicles very much amongst the Democrats. And the Republican Party has essentially doubled down on that strategy. That is their view of America's future. Who exactly is going to service it? Well, on the one hand, there's the local energy industry, so the fossil fuels, which the Biden administration has actually backed and is currently backing, right? So they want to get the price of gas or petrol down. So there's going to be not just global supplies of last resort, but likely a kind of protected American fossil fuel sector, which is the case in the 1950s and 60s when the Gulf producers first came along. America's oil producers were sheltered behind protection. So you could imagine that kind of scenario. And then, yeah, you would have a kind of residuum of fossil fuel driven, you know, motorheads who just like cranking their engines. And, you know, there's no obvious utility in it because like electric engines have got more torque. So if what you really want to do is haul logs, which seems to be like the mental image of so many of the truck owners, an EV is much better for hauling logs because it has instant maximum torque. You know, you can have huge amounts of power from zero revs. Though that constituency could remain. If you look at the automakers, the ones which are most globalized, it's hard to imagine them sticking with that kind of strategy, right? GM, for instance, is committed to transition to full EV by the mid-30s, I think. Uh, certainly the Fiat group will have the same kind of objectives because of the priorities of the global market, the priorities of the Chinese market, European market, California in the US. Ford is the odd company out so far, unsurprisingly, because their American franchise is truck-based. So they have not made a commitment, as far as I know, to exit internal combustion in the US. So maybe the future is a kind of, you know, a Ford truck, you know, paradise. And for high end, like performance cars, you know, BMW, BMW, Porsche are making a strong case for various types of e-fuel, you know, various types of um, environmentally friendly combustion fuels. So you could also say maybe see them as being part of that coalition. And frankly, if it's, you know, if it's narrowed down to niches like that, and we do have some sort of carbon capture going on, well, you know, let's fight the fights that matter. And that might not be the fight that does matter. But if it represents 30 to 40% of American society, which are clinging to this kind of fossil fuel vision of their world, and that then you see would see the analogs in Canada and Brazil, which have very similar cultures of settler colonial, you know, appropriation of nature being identified with their national future. 
that then becomes a much kind of bleaker scenario, I think. There you go. So Ford is the brand for log, log haulers around the world. In the meantime, I actually just bought my first cargo bike. So I'm my own stereotype of a European urban. Is it, is it, what, is it electric power? No, no, it's, it's even manual. Uh, you know, so it's powered pretty, purely by my legs. So that's me and, yeah, exactly, powering my kids around town. So anyway, I guess I'm not part of this particular conversation in any case. But we do need to leave it here uh, for now. And we'll be back next week. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Claudia Tady, Laura rossbrow Tellum, Rob Sachs, and Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Listeners to Ones and Twos even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TWOS at checkout. That's T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love getting your feedback. You can leave voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com or email us, podcast at foreignpolicy.com, or you can tweet us. That's at onesandtwospod. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll be back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. (music) 
everyday ambassador peels back the curtains of high stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.